Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, Okay, for the first time since March 2020, Elevate kids, get out of here. (laughs) I'm kidding. No, I'm not kidding, but I'm kidding, the tone. I'm kidding with the tone. Elevate kids, if you are interested, Elevate returns today. That's first and second grade. If you have a kid that is in kindergarten, um, they can, there is room in KR for kindergarten. And Elevate kids, usually I just say that and like, hordes of kids get up and take off, but I don't see any. So I'm just going to say it one more time, and if you don't go quick, you've got to sit in here and listen to me. So Elevate Kids, if you would like to go to Elevate, you can head out that door, uh, and um, Mr. Mike and Miss Stephanie are back there waiting for you, and are excited, and I'm, I'm just going to keep my head down, and there's no pressure. I mean, it's like first day back, so if you want to stay in here... It's fine. Now it feels awkward. We've made it awkward. Okay. All right. Uh, Vince Lombardi, uh, who is, whose name is, is on the Super Bowl. The, the Super Bowl trophy was named for, for Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was a legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. And in 1960, uh, it was his second year, only his second year coaching the Packers, and they went to the NFL championship before it was the Super Bowl. They went to NFL championship that year, uh, and they lost in, in heartbreaking fashion uh, in, in the last quarter to the Philadelphia Eagles. And so this was a championship caliber team. They had good players. Most of them returned. They were coming back. And the start of the next season, the expectations were pretty high for the Packers as Lombardi came back for his third year of coaching. And uh, you would have thought they just need to fine-tune some things, uh, maybe put in some trick plays, work on just a couple things here and there, but, but that's really all this team needed to hone their skill and go back and win the championship this year. But that's not how it went. Vince Lombardi, on his third year of coaching, walked back into this locker room with a team full of near champions holding up a pigskin, and he made this famous quote. You remember what the quote is? Gentlemen, this is a football. To which, reportedly, Max McGee, one of the Pro Bowl wide receivers from the Packers, jokingly said, Coach, uh, could you slow down? You're going a bit too fast for us. Lombardi had a relentless focus on the fundamentals of the game. Boring stuff. Right? This is how to block. This is how to tackle. This is what the goal is. This, this is a football. Um, He assumed and presumed nothing. He saw his players as blank slates every year that needed to be refilled and learned how to do all of it all over again, assuming that they didn't know uh, anything uh, that was going on. Um, And in response to Max McGee's comment, it was said that Lombardi cracked a brief smile and then got right back to the basics. 
Today, we're going to start a sermon series. It's going to take us through the fall. Uh, lest there be theological confusion, it's going to take us through the autumn. Uh, and we're going to go through the book of First John. Uh, however, for today, what I want to do is I want to give us a big picture. I want to go through an overview of 1 John and why it was written and what's it about. Uh, but I also want to back up. Uh, we want to hear what John has to say to the church in Ephesus, which is what, who the letter is addressed to. But I also want to back up and, and not only look at what is 1 John telling us and what do we need to learn from 1 John, but also what, how, do, how does 1 John fit into the totality of Scripture and what is Scripture saying and, and why do we read the Bible? And let's, let's get back to the first set. This is a football. Um, so, uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Next week, um, some of you, if you've been around for a while, some of you might remember Eric Freeman. Eric led our uh, youth group. He was a youth minister here when he was in seminary. It's been several years. Eric is all grown up now, and uh, he is in Cadillac, Michigan, and he will be planting a church uh, up in Cadillac. And so um, next week, he's going to be preaching here, and we're going to be partnering with him. We're going to take a, an offering uh, for Eric, and the name of the church he, he may have learned a lot theologically, but this still kills me. The name of the church is The Refuge. So we might partner with him financially. Um, no, I'm kidding. We're very excited uh, for Eric and for his wife, Julie. And uh, uh, he will be here next week preaching. And um, then the week after that, the 19th, we will celebrate baptisms uh, we will celebrate my wife's birthday. Not well, we won't. I will, and um, and then we will dive into First John. Then, so to kick off First John, uh, I want to read for you Acts chapter twenty. That makes sense, right? So, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter twenty, if I can find it, and if I can read it. We'll get into it, okay? Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, okay? Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from, and from house to house, testifying to both to, to the Jews and to the Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await. But I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of, among, uh, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves uh, know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. What a beautiful picture. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, Acts chapter 19 and 20 give us the beginnings of the early trials uh, and the formations of the church in Ephesus. This was probably early to mid-50s A.D. Um, and what Paul tells the elders in Ephesus in this final gathering with them is to pay careful attention to the grace that they hold to, that the, to the doctrine that they believe, to what he taught them about who Jesus was and what he had done and how to hold on to that because wolves will come, even wolves from among them, uh, and to tear apart the church, to twist words, and to try to get people to follow them. And so Paul commends them to God and to the word of his grace. And it is to this church in Ephesus that 30 to 40 years later, John the Elder, uh, which is largely agreed upon, that he wrote this letter of 1 John, is going to write to them. And sure enough, this church in its second generation was facing serious opposition, not only from the outside, but even from among its own leaders. Elders and leaders within the church are seeking self-power. They are going back to either Jewish roots or pagan roots and seeking to try to understand um, the gospel of Jesus has been offensive from, from day one and what he is and what he has done, and they're leading people astray. And certainly we live in a day and time where um, the name of Jesus is used to invoke all kinds of things, right? Uh, false teachings, abusive authority, false loyalties, cool branding, Lots of fear tactics about how those are the bad people and we are the good people. And, and even the person of Jesus should lead, a, uh, and even a teaching of how the person of Jesus should lead us towards self-autonomy. Uh, it's confusing. It can be easy, uh, easily overwhelming. And so we, like the church in Ephesus, we as followers of Jesus, specifically as ones who call refuge uh, this local expression of the church of Christ, that we would need to hear some wisdom and learn some wisdom from John. 
uh, who is not going to be giving us something new, but who is going to be reminding us of, of what is true, of what is of first importance. So from there, we're going to, if I were like high tech or something, I'd have a uh, graphic that we're going to zoom way back from there. Uh, at Refuge, for the most part, we try to teach through the Bible. We try to teach through books uh, of the Bible so that we can go through those together. Now, uns- uh, every once in a while, we will do thematic or topical sermons. Uh, and hear me, I think those are important. I think those are necessary. I think those are good. Um, and they can be helpful. But most of the time when we do sermon series, we go straight through a book of the Bible. And I think there's some intangible benefits of doing that. Uh, first, you can read along, right? You can follow along in your personal devotion and your time of study. And we're not jumping around from verse to verse to verse. You're, we're reading along as we go every week. Um, a lot of people feel overwhelmed by reading the Bible. And uh, they, they think, well, I read it, and I, where do I start? How do I, do I just start at page one? Uh, how do I read the, read the Bible? Usually what I'll tell people is to start with one book and try to become an expert in one book of the Bible. We can read the Bible devotionally, but if you're wanting to study and really learn, start with one book. And honestly, what I tell most people is to start with 1 John. He, is, he writes, uh, in fact, the title of the series is going to be So That You May Know. He writes on a very fundamental level. Uh, and so if you start with one book and you become an expert in that book, then you can go from there. Uh, and I would challenge you or encourage you, read through the whole book of 1 John. It's only four chapters. Read through the whole book of 1 John in one sitting and read it out loud. And don't read it out loud like, uh, like you're from a Hallmark, you know, uh, like you're auditioning for a commercial, read it like an actual human wrote it to people that they care about. Uh, and um, take time and read it out loud and let it all sit with you. Uh, you I, I rarely encourage people to kind of take on the totality of Scripture at once. There's the old saying, right? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Yeah. So take it slow. Um, the Bible has 66 books, and they, and there's many of them that require different lenses on how we read them. There's different genres. Uh, There are the books of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses during the Exodus. Uh, And then um, Moses and and probably uh, uh, collected by others. Uh, Then there are the historical books, which chronicle the history of Israel, of Judah, of the people of God. And you have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, and First and Second Kings. Um, and then after that, uh, you have um, wisdom literature, which I love and hate. Wisdom literature provides general wisdom for a living, which is good to read and good to kind of think about. It's terrible to preach on. Uh, that's just, that's over here, not, neither here nor there. Uh, but that's the writings of Solomon and uh, the book of Job. Um, and then you have the prophets. You have the major and the minor prophets. And I'll just tell you right now, if you've ever read through the major and minor prophets and you're like, these things don't really make sense. I get that he's mad, but apart from that, I don't, yeah, they're not going to make sense. 
A lot of these are the collected sayings of these guys that walk around Jerusalem or, or Judah or wherever they happen to be shouting out warnings. And so these are the collections of those. It doesn't really follow a storyline necessarily. But you can place the prophets, the major and minor prophets, back in with the, with the uh, Chronicles, um, the Samuel's Kings and Chronicles books. And you can kind of see where they fall, which kings, which rulers, which people were they talking to. And that's the major and minor prophets. And then you have poetry, which again is wonderful to meditate on, wonderful to memorize, and can be a pain to preach. Uh, and that is the Psalms, which are beautiful, uh, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, and these are writings filled with all the emotions of the human heart. The psalmists remember and cry out to God in praise and remember God's goodness and lament and, uh, and, and uh, all of uh, the emotions that go into basically uh, life in trusting and walking in obedience. And then once Jesus enters the scene, that, that, then we leave the Hebrew scriptures or what we would call the Old Testament and we enter into what we call the New Testament. And all of these combined in one scripture to tell uh, one continuous story. And the first four books of the New Testament, these are the Gospels. These are the accounts of the life and work of Jesus from various perspectives, uh, addressing different crowds. Matthew is written, written to the Jews. Mark is written to the Gentiles in Rome. Luke is a, his, a historical account for Theophilus. And then Luke would go and write the historical account at the beginning of the church uh, in the book of Acts. And then John was written to the Greeks. And then after that, you have the epistles. And the epistles are basically letters to churches that, where, where Paul, Peter, John, and some other authors are basically going, we have the life of Jesus. And then Acts chapter 2, we have the gathering of the people of Jesus, and they come together, and they study his teaching, and they study the, the, the apostles' teaching, and then they form the church. And that's Acts chapter 2. We have six verses of, them, of it going awesome. And then the good news and bad news, it all falls apart, and they're all, like before the ink dries, they're already writing letters to churches who are messing up. Uh, and so these letters are encouragement. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, they are not just this black and white, do this, don't do this, this is how you gather. It's, it's not a new Torah. It is how to walk out and live out a response together as a people, and not just the Jewish people, but now we've got to add Gentiles. How do we do this? It's not an instruction manual. It is a lot of reminders. This is what life in submission to Jesus looks like. And all of these letters are kind of the how-to of like, how, how do we do this? And most of them stem from how to do it wrong, right? Uh, and so these are the letters, for, this, is, uh, this is the epistles. And then, we have, uh, and then we have apocalyptic literature, which I saw something funny the other day that they had been moved from uh, fiction to current events. And uh, then you have the apocalyptic literature, which Daniel falls into that. And, but primarily Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. Um, and what you need to know about apocalyptic literature is they're not primarily about the end of the world. Yes, they do contain things that are about the end of the world, but Revelation is primarily about, you ready for this? The revelation of God. Who he is. Major work 
uh, apocalyptic biblically essentially means God revealed. And so Jesus is an apocalypse. God in the Exodus is an apocalypse. God in the New Testament in Acts is an apocalypse. And so what John is writing in the book of Revelation is basically how do we live, what was happening in this time where God was being revealed, and what we can take from that is what happens in all times where God is being revealed. And yes, it does hint toward that there will eventually be a conclusion. But let me give you the freedom and blessing to stop looking for it. Okay? You are free from flannel graphs and all that stuff looking for how the world's going to end. 2020 tempted me on that. Uh, but you'll be happy to know that end of the world theories have been around since the beginning of the world. Um, and so we want to preach through the Bible uh, so that we can read along, and, and it's important to have an understanding. Uh, but we also want to preach through the Bible so that we have to cover what the Bible covers. We can't dodge the hard stuff. There's stuff that we all like, right? Jesus loves you, and, and that's good. And that's good. But, but who else does Jesus love? And, and let's hold on. And so we've got to deal with stuff that's hard. Uh, we've got to deal with whatever Scripture brings up. Uh, and yes, we see throughout Scripture there's dangers when it comes to issues of sex or money, uh, but there's also dangers with the pride of religion and moralism. And so we definitely want to take on the easy stuff and the common stuff, but we also want to take on the hard stuff. So we preach through an entire book of the Bible, and we deal with some things in there that are hard to understand. And then another reason we preach through the Bible is that uh, it helps us to learn how to read the Bible. Um, how to ask good questions for personal insight and as well as communal insight. Did you know there's a Jew? I just learned this. There's a Jewish tradition. First of all, Protestants are really the only group that really pushes actually reading the Bible. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and I'm, I'm big on that. Uh, I, see, I see the dangers uh, of everybody having their own copy and being like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can, I can definitely get that. Uh, but uh, we want to push for you to read the Bible, but we don't do it alone. We don't do it alone. We do it together communally. We, I mean, you can read the Bible alone. Jewish tradition, you would always, rabbis would always study in pairs. You could certainly read the Bible alone, but we want to read the Bible also tethered together as a community. And where one may go, you know, I'm not sure about that. We have to pull that in. Jesus didn't just die for me. Jesus died for his people. And so we read and understand his, uh, his word together as a people. And not, and not only that, but not just we as we understand it in America, but we as has been understood through history, as is understood in Africa, as is understood in Southeast Asia, as is understood in places where their people are persecuted. We read the Bible communally and we grow and mature uh, as we do that. And so we do this not only together on Sundays as we go through, but also we do this in our gospel communities, which Kayla mentioned earlier, are starting up very soon. And if you want to get into one, it's a great place to learn and read. And we reflect together. You don't, you don't, it's, you don't go there. to This is not a seminary degree, but we learn how to read the Bible together and we hear from one another. Um, and at the same time, this is not, what does the Bible say to me? I'll get to that in just a second. But what does the Bible say? And that will help produce in us a depth and maturity. And it's important for us to read the Bible and, and to understand what genre, where we are in, uh, in the place that we are reading. 
Um, the ultimate, what we don't worry about, the Holy Spirit has given us sufficient evidence through Scripture that Christ is Lord. And so we can read the Bible and see Christ is King. Jesus is Lord. And it's sufficient uh, to, uh, to point that out and to overwhelm our hearts and our minds to make that confession and bring us into a saving relationship with Jesus. But there are also ways to manipulate there are ways to misread. There are ways to take certain parts of the Bible and pit them against others. There are certainly ways to make the Bible advocate whatever position you happen to take. Right? As long as you skip the other parts of the Bible that don't advocate for the positions that you take. And so we don't just want to look at what Scripture we don't just want to zoom in on a certain text and just diagnose a certain text. We also need to back up from that and see the Bible as a whole and the whole story it tells. And that's why every week when we gather, we remind ourselves that the grand story of Scripture, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, that the Bible tells a glorious whole story with Jesus at the centerpiece, uh, that it, it is about the revelation of Jesus as king and he ushers in this new kingdom and how now do we live in this new kingdom that Jesus has ushered in and over which he sits on the throne. It's easy to misunderstand or misapply scripture when we just zoom in and cherry pick and talk about our, the verses that we like. After all, we can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right? We can understand that Jesus is Lord but there's also a ton of arguments and disagreements and loyalties and allegiances and life situations that can pull us away from that. We can get focused on arguing secondary points and miss that Jesus is Lord. We can also be led astray by what Jesus is Lord means, and Jesus is Lord means you ought to have lots of money if you really believe that. And we would say, I don't know that that's what Scripture says. Words can be twisted, which is what's going on here. Wolves can enter in. Our own desires can be easily manipulated. So we not only want to be able to understand each book of the Bible in, it, in, in its context as it was written, but we also want to back up and understand the grand story that Scripture is telling on, on a, as a whole. Uh, last month, um, two of the guest preachers in particular, which I greatly appreciated, Mark Ryan and Greg Johnson, both appealed to specific verses and commands in Scripture regarding violence and regarding sexuality. But both of them also said, we also need to understand these in context. We need to back up and look at the trajectory of Scripture as a whole. And Mark Ryan, God bless him, the dude is smart enough to make the Bible, to manipulate it, to get what he wants. But he's willing to back up and submit and say, these are things that I want that Scripture forbids. And sex is always about giving in Scripture. And so I am compelled by the love of Jesus to remain celibate. If you haven't listened to the follow-up interview, uh, it's on the YouTube page. Man, I can't recommend it enough with Greg Johnson and with Mark Ryan. It was fascinating. Um, The culmination of the entirety of Scripture, all these letters, all these genres, all this, the revelations ultimately point us to the person and work of Jesus. And then what we see 
in that is that Jesus is the full revelation of God. And so how do we know who God is? How do we know what God is like? We look at Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of, of what God is like. So we're able to look at him. He condescends. He makes himself known in a language that we speak with our flesh. Well, what, what, what if God were one of us? Hey, I have great news. Is that Jewel? No, who was that? All right, forget it. My cultural references are lacking. Um, so if the Bible is written to reveal who God is and what he has done, then the questions we should ask while reading and studying scripture and learning should center on that. I really appreciate the way Zach S. Wine uh, breaks this down for questions we should ask. And I've even got um, cards. These are outside if you want to look. How do I, what are the questions I ask when I read scripture? There's a front and a back uh, on generally what's being said and then what are the applications uh, that are possible here. Um, but this is what he says. The Bible tells one story that is ultimately about Jesus, but then within that, there are many other stories to be told. Uh, there's the story, uh, within every part of Scripture, there's the story of God made known in Jesus. There's the story of this people in this context in the church at Ephesus, or this, this church in Rome, or this church in Galatia, or these people during the time of the exile. There is always, it, it, the Bible is written to these people, so there's the story of them. And then there's the story of all people. What do we all have in common? What are things that are common under the sun? And then there's the story of me and us in my time and in our people. And so the questions you can ask when reading Scripture, what's being made known about God to the people in this context, the people in Ephesus? What's going on with them? What do they need to hear about God? Then what do we have in common with them? Then what do I need to hear? Now, certainly these are good and easy questions to ask when reading Scripture. Certainly the Holy Spirit makes himself known through the Bible directly, but we don't do it well when we open up and say, what is the Bible saying to me and start off that way? then we make scripture more about me. Scripture is not a magic eight ball. We don't shake it and then, and then get answers. And heaven forbid you ever open it up and say, I need a word from the Lord and do something like that. All right? It's not a textbook, but this is the way, this is the way it, it, it is written. This is how we can grow in our depth and understanding. And yes, the Holy Spirit can reveal things to us through just directly reading the scripture without knowing Greek, without knowing the background, without knowing all that stuff. But together as a community, we know him better and we see his word made more fruitful in us as we do this among ourselves. So with all that, coming back, we're starting a series through 1 John. This is a letter, it's a pastoral letter to this church in Ephesus. Uh, some of the fascinating beginnings in Ephesus, uh, Paul is facing opposition from Jews. Uh, who are continuing to hammer, not that Jesus was the Messiah, but what that requires. You still don't, you're not dropping the law, you're not dropping dietary laws, and you're certainly not dropping circumcision. And so he's facing opposition from them, but also you had a whole lot of pagans who worshipped Artemis in, uh, in the city of Ephesus, uh, and they started converting to Christianity, and when they started converting, they stopped buying silver uh, statues of Artemis. And if your faith in Jesus starts affecting the economy, you're in trouble. And they were in trouble. To the point where they riot. <laughs> the people riot in, uh, in Acts 19, just a, a chapter before. Um, and so this, this church is facing opposition from Jews that Jesus 
wasn't actually human. Uh, I'm sorry, that Jesus wasn't actually divine. If this was a human, he wasn't actually divine. Uh, And then from pagans, uh, he was divine. He was not human because Gnostics believed that the spiritual world is what mattered and not the physical world. And so these attacks come in from every side on what to do with the person of Jesus. There were theological issues in their understanding about the person and work of Jesus, and there were also ethical issues of how to live that out and what that means and what you do and what you can't do and how you should treat others and how you shouldn't treat others. And John's going to address all of that, and John's going to write this letter and actually kind of give us a picture of what it is to walk into the locker room uh, at the church at Ephesus and say, this is the football. This is the basics. This is Jesus. What you'll notice in 1 John, John will use the term God and Jesus interchangeably because to John, there was no distinction. This is God. Um, He's going to use a lot of stark contrast to make his point. Light and dark, love and hate. There are actually, if you want to kind of make the distinction, there's actually two main, uh, I don't know, sections of 1 John. In one chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, uh, he says that the message we have heard directly from Jesus is that God is light. And then in chapter 4, how do we know that we've come to know God? That we are able to love him because God is love. And the central theme in this entire letter, the truth that is under attack, the truth that John seeks to protect in the hearts and minds of these followers, of these followers, the truth that unifies all believers, the truth that also separates uh, Christianity from any other religion, the truth that John casts an incredibly beautiful picture for this church and for us as well, is this, that the word of God, God himself, has been made manifest to us. The incarnation. This is God become man, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us. The God of the universe, the God transcendent that we worship, the God who has led Israel out of captivity, the God who performed all these miraculous wonders and works. We've seen him, we've touched him. We've been near him. We smelled his breath. We held his hand. We wept with him. We laughed with him. He has taken on flesh and has dwelled among us. He has become human. He has considered himself nothing and even taken the form of a servant. This is the God of the universe. And I want to tell you, it was as offensive then as it is now. We will find, we will do everything we can to find ways around that. And John is like, no. This is the biggest heresy against Christianity when we try to manipulate that, when we try to make it say something else. Well, Jesus was born a human, but then uh, he was given divine uh, attributes and he was made divine because of his faithfulness. Nope. He was before time. Well, Jesus was a good teacher, and we need to follow his example, but let's be careful. Let's not make him God. Okay, well, he made himself God. 
I remember talking to a Muslim friend and we were all trying to explain who the people we emulate in our faith. Uh, and uh, this, was a, a, this was a rabbi, a, a, a rabbi, an imam, and a pastor. Uh, we did not walk into a bar though because yeah, uh, imams have a thing with that, which I wish we could figure that out. But anyway, um, and the, the question you know, was who do you emulate? And for the rabbi, she was like, well, I, you know, I don't, maybe Moses, but we don't really have anybody that we truly emulate. And then she looked at the, the imam and she said, for you, I, I would assume that it's, it's Muhammad. And he said, yeah. And, and then she said, and for you guys, I guess you emulate Jesus. And I was like, well, yes. I said, but we worship him. And the imam took a step back. He said, you worship him? And I was like, yes. I thought, I thought everybody knew that. <laughs> you worship a human? Yeah. It got uncomfortable really quick. This has caused dissension throughout history and even to today, and, and we'll take a deep dive in the implications of the, of the incarnation and what that means. Uh, what we'll see in John is he says God is light and God is love. We can't just pick one of those over the other. We have to look at how our theology um, has to shape and influence our practice and our ethics and our morals, uh, that he is both light and love, and how an encounter with Jesus changes everything. And so every week, what we're going to do, one thing that we've tried to do uh, both in the pulpit and in our GCs is we, we want to give you a way to practice this, a practical thing to take with you and to implement into your life. Uh, we've been doing this for a couple of years now, trying to give you something to practice as you leave on Sundays. Um, the title of this sermon series is called So That You May Know. John wants the followers of Jesus in Ephesus, Ephesus to be confident in their hope in Christ. We want you to be confident in your hope in Christ. We want you not to be tossed to and fro by the meaningless ridiculousness of the culture wars and trying to think that that's where our battle is. Uh, we, want, um, we don't want you to be more influenced by religious or irreligious culture around you. We want you to be steadied by the hope that comes from Christ alone and the fullness of who he is and the completeness of what he has accomplished and that it is a deep encounter with the risen Jesus that shapes and transforms the very stories that we tell about who we are and about what matters and about hope in the world and about forgiveness and about what is important and about light and love. And so with that, what I want to give us this week and what I want us to begin to work on is um, to be able to tell your story, i.e. your testimony, all right? Testimony can be a, a churchy word, so, and well, shoot, story's becoming a churchy word. Um, how do you tell your story? And we're not going to do it all at once, but we're going to start with just a little bit. Learning to tell the story of Jesus as it relates to our stories, to who I am. And every week for uh, the past year and a half, we uh, have, ever since we have been disbanded as a church and slowly working our way back together, we have said every Sunday morning, the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed starts with these two words. Remember what they are? I believe. I believe. This week, I want you to stop and examine that question. What do I believe? What do I actually believe? And how much does that impact what I do and what I say and who I love and, and all of this stuff? What do I, what do I believe? 
What do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about me? What do I believe about a leaf? A, bl- a belief. Not a leaf. I mean, I don't know. That sends you down a... Whatever. Um, what does your everyday life reveal about what you believe? And here's the deal, all right? This is not about shame. It's not about, like, if you really believe this, you're going to forward this email on to, you know, 20 other people. It's not about shame. It's about being honest. Getting back to the very basics, the very fundamentals of the faith of a follower of Jesus. Slow down. Put the cart back behind the horse. This, this is a football. No presumptions. What do I actually believe? And so this is where I want to finish And I want to tell you on this holiday weekend, I don't want to tell you what you should believe. Um, I want to tell you this. I struggle a lot. I wrestle with lots of stuff. Technically, you could say, I'm paid to wade through and study and communicate this stuff. And I've heard more than once, well, of course you believe this stuff. You're the pastor. And I will tell you, I think there's enough podcasts and blogs and reports and newspapers out there to know that pastors don't always believe the stuff that they teach. And listen, if you've been here long, you know that I am a skeptic on lots of stuff. You know that I am cynical. It is a daily battle to keep that in check. For better, for better and for worse. So here's what I want you to know. I am truly and fully convinced that Jesus Christ lived and breathed and walked the earth 2,000 years ago. I am fully convinced and believe that his teaching and his life put him at odds with people in power, with religious leaders, with politicians, and yet brought shocking and radical transformation to hundreds of people who followed him in all kinds of desperate situations. I believe that he stood trial when the religious and political elite got tired of him and couldn't stand him anymore, and that they put him to death without a single verifiable charge standing against him, that he was, in fact, innocent. And I believe, I'm not reciting, I, I, I believe this. I will be made a fool for this. I believe when that happened, death lost. And that Jesus rose from the grave in a physical body. He didn't float. He rose from the grave. And I believe and I am fully convinced that this proves beyond a shadow of doubt, historically, philosophically, existentially, take your pick, biologically, whatever you say for physics, I'm not a scientist, that this proves that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, not like emperors, kings, and pharaohs claims to be sons of the gods, but that he was in fact God himself in the flesh 
who is to be followed and worshipped. I believe there is a whole lot to be deconstructed with how that truth has been applied to the people of God and to those in power, especially how it has been applied in our world, what has been done in the name of Jesus. Paul grieved when people manipulated the name of Jesus for personal gain. That's better than my response most of the time. But I will say the fact that this is happening right off the bat gives me hope that the people of God have always been messed up. And that in our sinfulness, we will always manipulate truth. Jesus was not, this was not a pure religion up until the 50s or depending on your political affiliation, 2008 or 2016. And now it's the end of the world. This has been going on for a while. I personally wrestle with struggle and doubt. This belief of the resurrection of Jesus is tested in me all the time. I don't just do this and close my eyes and hope it's true. I have read, I have wrestled, I've struggled, I have talked, I have labored, I have cried. I'm skeptical about a lot of things. I forget daily to remember these things in every part of what I do. I take this for granted at times. I get lazy. I am fearful of man. I feel loneliness. I have struggled tremendously with anxiety and depression at times. I cover my insecurities with sarcasm. And yet, my hope is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, one day, somehow, with all of my cynicism, with all of my crap, with all of the ways that I feel miserably short of what I should be, I will be made whole. And not only me, but the whole world will be put right. I am firmly convinced of this. And that I will be able to stand before Jesus only offering all of my shortcomings and mistakes and standing in awe and wonder of his love and his mercy and his grace. And I will bear the shame that comes with that. And if somebody says, are you kidding me? You still believe that? And I will say, boy, that's a lot of shame. Yes, I do. This is not a show for me. I think I've made enough people mad. Hopefully you know this is not a money-making gig for me. Uh, this is not the way to grow a church in St. Charles. I actually believe this. I want it for you. I want it better for you than for me. Christ is King. Jesus is Lord. So this week, let's ask that question. What do I really believe? Is it worth the cost that I'm willing to give up? Do I really fully believe that? Does my life bear testimony to what, that I really believe something else? Talk about it with friends. Ask people close to you. Talk to your gospel community. If you have questions about it, well, this is a scary thought for me. What do I really believe? Yeah. Make an appointment. Go get coffee or beer with Darden or come talk to me and we'll get a chocolate shake or something super healthy. Ask questions. And I will push you to ask good questions. Don't just ask questions to get out of stuff. Ask good questions. Let this week, as you build your testimony, start with those two questions. What, what, do, I, what do I actually believe?
And my hope is that we will find Christ not only sufficient, but glorious. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for loving your bride, for bearing with your people. Oh, man, I don't know how you do it. I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about me. But you are gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Faithfulness from generation to generation. So I pray this morning that, we would, that, that this week we would be honest with that. Um, and if there are questions, if there are things that we need to deconstruct, if there are things that we need to deal with, that we wouldn't just pretend that they don't exist, uh, nor would we throw the baby out with the bathwater, that the, the resurrection, your resurrection is, is actually historically verifiable. So may we be careful and cautious to actually truly examine, begin to build our testimony, the the story that we tell, the story that our life tells. What do I believe about the resurrection of Jesus? Holy Spirit, be with us. Work in me, work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.